Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Connor. Today we are joined by Andrew Quilty to discuss his latest work, August in Kabul, America's Last Days in Afghanistan. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Connor. Andrew, I'd love to hear a little bit about who you are and where you're from and how you came to to write this book. What's your career trajectory a little bit? Career trajectory, jeez. Um, I, I mean, I've been taking photos for close to twenty years now. Um, I first, the first camera I had was given to me by by an uncle, and I took that on a road trip around Australia with a couple of friends when I was like twenty, and um, actually, that was in. 2001 and um, I had a I mean this sort of I guess um, my two two aspects of my life kind of maybe spawned to a degree that year um, I, I kind of enjoyed using the camera taking very basic photos of you know my friends and my travels that year and, and so that um, ended up with me studying photography and then and then um, going into it as a profession and of course 2001 um, was also uh, the year of 9/11 and um, and I was in the a very bizarre out of the way place um, on September 11 2001 this tiny little pub in the middle of Queensland, like the closest town from there was like a hundred kilometers away. What's that? Like 60 miles or something. And, um, and so, you know, like uh, I'm not alone in, in that day being a very pivotal moment for, um, uh, as it was, um, for everyone, but, um, it kind of, I don't know, a few things happened that ended up seeing me, well, obviously in Afghanistan, but I, when I when I really trace it back, like how I ended up in Afghanistan, I kind of trace it back to to that that point, um, and I'm sure that's that was the point that a lot of people's journeys toward Afghanistan began. But um, it was just a very strange um, place for for mine to begin. Um, and then, but uh, yeah, before I ended up in Afghanistan, I I studied photography, as I said, and then I worked as a photographer in newspapers in Sydney and then um, uh, outside the country. I, I moved to New York for a couple of years in 2012 and um, um, did a bit of work there. I covered, um, uh, what was it, Hurricane Sandy? Was, yeah, Hurricane Sandy, yeah, there. And, um, and then um, someone asked me if I wanted to, join them on a trip to, to Afghanistan where they were going to, to write a story for an Australian magazine. And, um, yeah, I just sort of jumped on board, didn't have any intention of staying, um, 
long. That was in 2013, and yeah, I ended up staying there till 2022. So that was that's the long and the short of it. When did your interest for photography sort of turn towards uh, more of the extreme aspects of the human experience, like you know the hurricane? Afghanistan was that in the beginning for you on your road trip or that kind of evolved into being that way that that evolved a bit probably probably with the help of the kind of people that I was hanging around with and looking up to um as a photographer um I think it's it's quite common for photojournalists to point their camera towards people who are unfortunate or you know down on their luck or um, underrepresented or, um, you know, uh, underdogs of one sort or another. So it was something I'd often, um, used my camera for, um, but not to the extent that I did when I got to Afghanistan. I mean, for one thing, you know, the, the misfortune in a place like Afghanistan is, is on another level to that which it is certainly in Australia um, and and it takes place in a lot more visceral ways um, a lot more uh, visually I guess um, and and it makes the the camera an ideal uh, means of of recording it um, you know in those very um, spectacular, confronting often violent um scenes that um you know most people are probably fairly familiar with from afghanistan how was the process for you of transitioning from using uh photography of your as your means of sharing your experiences to the writing method was it a challenge for you i mean how was that 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 kind of happened organically as well. I it was actually, um, I mean, my the the transition for me from one to the other, or or to the point where they both became somewhat combined, kind of happened through Instagram. I I kind of shudder to admit, but um, you know, like for me, um, I thought photos were a great way to. Um, capture the the visual beauty and, and nature of of Afghanistan and the and the very um, yeah visceral um, visual aspects, but I also found that there was a lot going on that you couldn't capture in the frame that needed to be somehow brought into the context of it, and so I, I you know I tried to do that with the the captions in my that, that um, went along with my photos on Instagram. And, um, yeah, there just seemed to be so much, you know, wherever you pointed a camera, there was so much history and context um, outside of the frames of, of the camera that, that I thought was um, integral to bolstering the story of what could be seen in the, in the photo. So um, that sort of developed and um, bit by bit I thought, I started um, uh, not not only writing to um, accompany photos on Instagram, but um, in you know more sort of formal ways for um, for stories you know published in newspapers, magazines, and online and things. And um, I suppose it that 
really um, the, the, the moment where I I thought, okay, I'm I'm not just a photographer, but I'm a, a writer as well, or you know, a bit of both, or a photojournalist, or whatever you call it, happened um, when at one point I was I had I had some photographs that were fairly significant in in terms of my work there and, and in terms of um, uh, the the current you know the 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 moment in history in Afghanistan and and I wasn't with a, a writer at the time um, and I would often travel with a, a writer when I left Kabul to go out to the provinces I do the photos they do the writing and on this occasion um, I had the photos but I didn't have a writer so I was like well I guess it's up to me and um, and that um, I had a very good uh, editor that I worked with at the time who was who was pretty hard on me but um, who taught me a lot. She was um, – it would have been a lot easier for her to have just gone in and corrected all my – all the flaws in my writing and have done it all herself. It would have been a lot quicker and a lot easier for her but instead she went in and she pointed out where I needed – um, to address certain aspects and made suggestions, but she didn't do it for me. She made me do it. And I, oh, I hated that process because I thought I just put all my energy into this first draft. I'm like, it can't possibly be any better. That's as good as, good as I can give. And then I realised it's the job's only half done at that point. She, when she handed it back to me, just, you know, like marked up to hell. I was like, I can't possibly sit down to this again. I'm done. But sure enough, you know, I, I made myself do it and, and it, the, the article was much better for it. And, um, and I've worked with her, um, on and off for the, the, the years that followed. And, and, um, she was very, um, she helped my, my writing a lot. I think it was worth it because this book flows beautifully. It's, it's a very coherent narrative and it pulls you in. Um, and for the listeners who haven't yet picked up a copy, what exactly is this book? What, how did this come to be specifically? Um, yeah. So I'd, I'd been talking to a, a, the publisher, um, the, the Australian publisher who published this first, um, for about a year and a half about, about writing a book about Afghanistan. I'd, by that time, I'd been there for like seven or eight years and they thought, okay, you know, this guy's done a bit of writing, um, He's Australian. We, you know, they needed a book out of Afghanistan, and we're trying to we're going back and forth and talking about what the topic could be. It never really landed on anything solid, and then um, then it got to like midway through twenty twenty one, and it became very obvious that the Afghan government was going to actually it wasn't that it it, it was when. Biden at the time confirmed the date for the withdrawal. It was going to be late August that year. Um, we thought, okay, th- this is this is what the book has to be about. It's very obvious. And then within, I mean, it was like within weeks, it was like, okay, well, so this book isn't just going to be about the US withdrawal now because all these other things are converging, like the Taliban is converging on Kabul, the... Um, it looks like the Afghan government is increasingly shaky um, 
in the absence of the Americans. And so, um, yeah, it, the, 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 the story that would be told in the end um, evolved very quickly and the, the stakes kind of escalated um, exponentially. And, I mean, it got to one point where I was, I was actually, when we were having these conversations, I was in Europe. I'd gone there for a, a wedding in um, the summer of that, that year in July and and things were just going downhill so quickly back in Afghanistan. Um, and it got to the point where I had to make a decision, do I, okay, am I going to go back and potentially, you know, most likely get stuck there because the airport, it looked like the airport, or it was inevitable that the airport would close down once the Taliban got to within a certain... Uh, proximity of Kabul Um, so definitely get stuck in Afghanistan and then kind of cross your fingers um, you know it it was it was a roll of the dice whether it was going to be like a civil war type scenario where the Taliban would be outside shelling shelling the city until the government and security forces gave in or if the government and security forces just rolled over and let the Taliban walk in um, at which point it was like okay well case survived the um potential civil war now you gotta cross your fingers and survive the um the incoming taliban um so yeah i I guess i was kind of um i mean that decision was up to me but i could tell that the the publisher and the editor they were probably they were probably thinking okay well this isn't going to be a book if he doesn't go back in and but if he does go back in it's going to be more of a book than we bargained for. So, um, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, in the end it wasn't, it absolutely wasn't for the sake of writing a book that I went back in. Absolutely not. It was, um, it's kind of just to be there with friends and colleagues and things and, you know, um, let it go down, um, with them together. And especially with the kind of people that couldn't leave, um, I just, I, I couldn't have lived with myself if I watched that all go down from from afar while, um, you know, friends and colleagues who, who didn't have the um, luxury of being able to leave, um, you know, endured it, um, you know. You know, and it wasn't as, as though I could um, have a huge impact on their experience of it or, or what happened, but... I just felt like it, it was a solidarity thing that I needed to be there to go through it with them. How much time in total have you spent there in Afghanistan? Um, I first arrived there in um, December 2013 and then I lived there. So it was like, I think it was nine years all up. I left yeah. mid last year, almost nine years. What was the best part of living there and, and what do you miss the most now that the regime has changed? Oh, there are lots of things. I mean, the the, the work side of it was um, something that I hadn't experienced before. Like I just, I just found a fulfillment in my work that I hadn't experienced before. I just, you know, it didn't feel like work. It felt like it was just, I loved what I did. It was really challenging. It was... Um, exciting sorry i don't know what's is that me or you i think it's you but 
Yeah, I think it is too. I thought I'd get on do not disturb. Let's try that. Um, and, um, and it was, you know, it was, yeah, exciting and risky at times. And, um, and so that heightens the, not only the work experience, but also the, um, experience of, you know, relationships and friendships and, um, the day to day. I mean, you know, like, um, I think, yeah, made, made good friends, like going through, um, you know, somewhat extreme situations with friends. Um, you know, I guess it's like sort of trauma bonding or whatever you call it. Um, but it, it does heighten, um, your heightens everything, you know, and, and even just that the, if, if those experiences never eventuate the, the possibility that they might or the threat of them heightens everything in day-to-day life. So, you know, going, going to the street, going up the street to buy your groceries is like, it's like, you know, mini adventure. And, um, but aside from that, I, I, I mean, the country itself is just incredible. Um, incredibly beautiful as a photographer. Um, I love the light in the place, like a sort of hazy, dusty light and the, um, the, when it was, when it was clean and clear, like that high mountain air, um, in Kabul surrounded, constantly surrounded by these huge, um, you know, like, what are they like 15,000 foot mountain peaks and, um, and, and the people, obviously, I think that, I think if it wasn't for the overall character of, of Afghans themselves, I don't think I would have spent as long as I did there, like the warmth and hospitality and sense of humor is, um, is uncommon, I would say, um, in comparison to other places in the world I've been, particularly given everything they've endured at the hands of foreigners, you know, like it, it always, um, I was always quite shocked by that, how, how welcoming people would be even despite, um, um, you know, a lot of the misfortune that has come as a result of, of foreign intervention there. I guess speaking of the people, uh, would you would you mind going in a little bit into maybe the story of Nadia? I think that was maybe the story that that, that captured me the most throughout your book and um, how you came to learn her story and the part you played in it. Mm. Yeah, Nadia. She, um, yeah, she's an incredible young woman. Um, I first met Nadia a couple of days after the Taliban took control of Kabul. And those days were just like uh, indescribable as far as the sort of intensity of the experience was. Um, apart from everything that was going on in the real world in Kabul and the desperation and the, um, you know, no one was going to sleep. Everyone was just constantly um, working to either save themselves or to get themselves into the airport or to help others to get into the airport and and out of Afghanistan. Um, and so that was really intense. And the other um, equally intense thing was the these bloody things. Um, phones were just like 
I just hated picking up my phone because every, every time I picked it up, there's just like a, a roll of, of new cries for help from people I'd never met, never heard of. And I know people all over the world um, experience that as well. Um, but that was a, that was something that I will, um, that really stays with me from that time. And, and so it was both that and then going out on the streets where people would come up to you and they would have their um, papers, their documents that attested to their um, involvement with um, the US embassy or US forces as an interpreter or whatever. And it's like, you know, can you, can you help me? <clears throat> and I mean, you know, like I had my hands full with the, a, a few Afghan friends who I was trying to help. I just, I just didn't have capacity to do much more. But, um, um, and so it was very, it was very hard, you know, having people constantly coming to you and, and knocking them back. Um, <clears throat> Nadia, I met in one of these situations where um, I, I was, I, I'd gone to the entrance to the French embassy where a few hundred people were, had gathered outside uh, a few hundred Afghans had gathered outside because they believed that um, there were more Afghans inside the French embassy who were going to be transported to the uh, airport and out. And these people were waiting outside in the hope that they could get in and then to the airport. Uh, I went there to take some photos and before I took a single photo, I think, um, I got picked up by the Taliban, um, kind of... <clears throat> I wasn't detained. I wasn't like, I was just basically wasn't allowed to go. And they, you know, wanted me to delete my photos and just hassled her ass basically and sat down um, until they could work out who I was and get rid of me. And um, while that was going on, unbeknownst to me, Nadia was in this group of, of people waiting to get in the embassy and she was filming me getting harassed by these Talibs. And then once they finally let me go, I started walking back towards my motorcycle, which I'd parked a few hundred metres away. And on the way there, you know, people were coming up to me asking for help. And it was just like got to the point where I had to be like kind of rude, like, you know, I can't help you. And then so I finally got to my bike and got on and heard this little voice like, excuse me, sir. And I was like, oh, God, what now? And I looked up and it was Nadia. And she said, oh, I saw what happened to you back there. Um, I took a video of it. Do you want it? I was like, and I, I just couldn't believe at that point, like someone was offering something to me when for those previous few days, it had just been people were asking, asking, asking for help. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure, send it to me. And I gave my number. And, um, and um, yeah, she sent it to me. And, um, and that was that. And... Um, and then um, it slowly transpired. She, she didn't tell me at that point um, of her circumstances or why she was waiting outside the embassy, why she was trying to leave the country, but that slowly became apparent. Um, and the story of that is, is obviously in the book, but um, it wasn't even Nadia in the end who I think told me of how dire her circumstances were and the like really imminent threat she was under. It was I'm pretty sure it was one of her friends who who had to tell me because um, 
I was just so inundated with um, everything else going on, and and I wasn't I wasn't paying as much attention to Nadia as I wish I had been in hindsight. And um, yeah, as it turned out, she was in like under dire threat, and um, and yeah, like the at that point it got to a point where I, um, when I understood the level of, um, risk she was, she was under, um, it got to a point where I could no longer, I couldn't, I couldn't physically help her. And so I had to enlist the help of others and, um, and yes, I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't let on too much spoiler the book, but, um, yeah, she's a incredible, incredible woman. And, and that the, the way we met was, is very, um, reflects um the, the the woman that i you know got to know as i as i did get to know her uh, more down the track yeah it is an awesome story it's just just saying for the people listening and it's it's worth checking out um yeah um i don't know if you want to get in at all to politics but uh <laughs> What, what, what are your thoughts on, on the Doha agreement and what went down in Afghanistan? I mean, what are your thoughts there? I thought, I mean, the Doha agreement initially, like for about 30 seconds, I was like punching the air. I was like, oh, amazing. And, and so were the people around me. So were the Afghans around me. It was like the first little ray of hope that people had had for um, that the war might end um, in nearly 20 years, um, as soon as the, as soon as the details of that, of that agreement were made public, it, it became cl- apparent pretty quickly that this was not, it, it wasn't the ray of hope that, um, that, um, I had in, initially thought it, it was, um, and rather it was, it was like a, it was like, um, you know, the U S had signed its own death warrant there, um, in Afghanistan that they were really capitulating. They were giving, handing a lot more over a lot more to the Taliban, um, than they were asking in return. Um, and my sense, I, you know, I, I don't know if it's provable at all, but my sense was that it was it was rushed through, um, and the American side conceded so much um, in order to get an agreement that would be able to be implemented um, in time. That Trump at the time would be able to benefit it benefit from it in, in the uh, twenty twenty election, um, which I mean, in the end, he, he didn't win the election anyway. Um, but it, it just seemed, I mean, in, in Afghanistan, a, a lot of people thought that it was that the Americans were, had basically changed sides and were now working with the Taliban. Um, it, it, it was that, um, I mean, the, the extent to which it benefited the Taliban over the Afghan government that the um, American, you know, three four American, uh, three American presidents at that point had supported for nearly 20 years that, um, that the idea that the Americans were actually now supporting the Taliban was like not that, 
um, far-fetched. I mean, I, I don't believe they were, but, um, um, it, yeah, it wasn't that far-fetched. Were you surprised by any of the actions or reactions by um, higher-ups in the Afghan government or generals at all? Um, the reaction to the Doha Agreement? No, rather the, the, the reactions that took place in August towards, towards the end there. Mm. Oh, I mean, I don't think you'll be surprised by anything when it comes to Afghanistan ever again now. But, um, oh, I mean, I was definitely, I found it disheartening and disappointing the way that the security forces just collapsed the way they did. But I think it was, um, I mean, had I been in their place, um, knowing how kind of how little support uh, the the Afghan security forces were getting from the government, how little cohesion there was between the security forces and how little um, how little belief there was in the in the central government. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, in hindsight, a lot of the people who a lot of those um, soldiers who, um, surrendered and and got away with their lives. You know, I, I think you could say that they made the right choice. But when when you saw how quickly the, the government folded in the end, imagine having fought to the death for for that government that just capitulated the way it did. Um, it would have been that would have been very hard to have lived with for the survivors of those of those soldiers. Um, um, and I think, you know, it's also, um, you know, obviously the, the, the blame, there's a lot of blame to go around and, and I think, um, a lot of it has to lie with the, um, the military infrastructure that was set up, um, um, under the, primarily under the. American military that you know built the Afghan National Security Forces kind of in its own mold, um, you know, to rely on um, you know cutting edge um, logistical capabilities and um, air assets and um, systems that have taken you know hundreds of years to um, evolve and trying to um, transpose those onto a you know, a 15-year-old army and um, uh, police force and expecting it to, you know, grow out of the desert like that um, and then and then pulling the, pulling the cord when um, on, on all the support for those, um, for those systems and logistics and um, aircraft um, at the at the eleventh hour, I mean, I never really, never really stood a chance, and that was that was kind of um, had been evidenced from about twenty fifteen when it, it became apparent how reliant um, Afghan forces were on international air support. When I say international, I, I mean American air support, I suppose. But um, sorry, man, I don't know where that noise is coming from. Um, and 
but um, it, um, yeah, it, it, it um, for example, every time a provincial capital was overrun by the Taliban from, and that happened a few times in 2015, 16, maybe 17, um, I think it would have been unlikely that they would have been retaken without American air support and, and some of the ground support. The Afghan forces just hadn't, didn't have the capacity yet. Um, and they had, they had been built to rely on, on air support because every time they'd gone out on missions, um, they had had, you know, on, on serious missions, they'd had American air support, which is a huge um, um, morale booster. I've never been in the military, but I can imagine how assuring it would be to have um, aircraft circling around above you when you're on a dangerous mission and um, to, in the space of, you know, a matter of months to have that taken away. Um, um, the, yeah, I mean, I know for a fact that it, that it seriously affected the morale and, and then the casualty numbers started going up and then the, the effectiveness of the missions themselves started deteriorating and, um, yeah, just um, it really cascaded. That, uh, that There was a real snowballing effect of that. When that morale started to tumble, it was just, there was um, no way it could really be stopped. Well, do you have any advice for how, for what we can do now from the outside to help both those that managed to escape and those that didn't? And what are you doing personally, if I can ask? To, to help people escape, oh, to help man, people escape, I, and to help people that that uh, have escaped out as well. Yeah. Um, honestly, for the for the people who have escaped, um, I have. I guess I'm still putting all my effort into people who haven't escaped yet. I think the ones who have, um, okay, um, at least they are physically safe now you know some of them the ones who have got um you know residency or um, citizenship or you know got their kids in school or whatever or jobs you know there are plenty plenty of others who are waiting in in um you know third countries you know just waiting basically um but for the ones who who did successfully get out i feel like you know someone else can sort of take the load now um whereas i'm still i mean yeah there's there's a couple there's a couple of people in the book um who are really um you know their 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 life is um you know they're really teetering on the edge of you know whether they'll get through the next day um so my efforts are uh, with them for the time being. And it's, yeah, it's, I mean, there's been plenty of times where I've just thrown my hands up in the air because I, I don't know where else to turn. I feel like, um, um, I think that the, the, the best way for, um, the, the only hope that, um, Afghans, certainly those who had anything to do with the military have now, are. um, uh, American service members who are who have not given up, um, because certainly in Australia there's there's very little um, 
I mean, I feel like I've, I've run that, um, that path kind of to death. I, I don't really have much hope left for getting any, any other Afghans that I know here, but, um, there are enough, um, American service people and, and, and some Australians actually who have connections with, with Americans who are just, you know, like, I mean, I'm, it blows me away actually, um, how determined they are and how, um, indefatigable they are in trying to, to help people. Um, and I would be, I would have given up if it wasn't for, for them. Yeah. So I've been really impressed by that. And, you know, I've been like seriously critical of the American military and the Australian military, but like there are some individuals amongst them and, you know, a lot, a lot of individuals who are just, you know, just pulling out all stops and a very, um, yeah, gives me a lot of, um, you know, it, it, it um, somewhat um, relieves the the bitter taste that was left in my mouth um, over how um, how it all ended there in twenty twenty one. This goes without well, with this this goes without saying, but the the book here is obviously um, a such a, such a huge. Um, I think it's a big inspiration to people both in Afghanistan, outside Afghanistan, and some of us that don't know anything about what's going on. And so that's an amazing contribution. And uh, I really admire the fact that you're still working hard at, at doing anything you can to help out. Um, but as far as, um, I guess, writing and photography, uh, what do you have coming up next in your career? So for the last six months, I've been going through, I, I did a rough count. I've been through about 300 and, 20,000 photos from my time in Afghanistan. I've been going through all of them. I've been captioning all of them, like basically just getting, getting everything sort of tidied up um, for my, you know, archive and, um, and also putting a, a book of um, photos from my time in Afghanistan together. Um, and that's going to come out in October in Australia and hopefully a little later in um, US and Europe. Awesome. Looking forward to seeing it. Well, thank you so much, man, for your time and sharing your story with us. Appreciate it. Pleasure, Connor. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for taking an interest.